Good evening, friends, and welcome to Sleepy Tom Tales, a podcast aimed at helping you to get a good night's sleep. Do you find your mind plagued with the stresses of modern life, especially when the lights are out and you're trying to get a restful night? Does your spinning mind keep you awake? Follow my voice down the path towards a good night's rest. Listen to me tell a story that will keep your mind from wandering to your daytime problems. The ones you can't solve right now, and will be easier to solve while rested. Listen to my voice and allow yourself to drift, following the twists and turns of the story, but slowly letting go, and drifting into sleep. Before we go too much further, I'd like to take a couple of minutes to ask you for some support. If you'd like to support Sleepy Time Tales, To help me to keep it ad-free and going out to thousands of insomniacs just like you, please consider supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com slash sleepytimetales. This is a monthly system of support that not only helps me keep the lights on, but can get you fun bonuses based on your contributions. From as little as $2 a month, you get weekly access to early release on the main episodes, so that you get your fresh sleep aid on a Wednesday instead of a Sunday. And $5 a month gets you weekly bonus mini-sodes, special edits, and a monthly mega-sode, which is all of the previous month's releases in one big listen. But if monthly seems a big ask, you can make one soft tips through the tip jar on the website. I've got some basic merchandise up on a Public store, which you can reach through the show notes or on the website as well. You can take advantage of our new partnership with Sleep Phones. Headphones designed specifically to help you sleep rather than poking your ears like earbuds do or take up too much space and don't let you lie properly like your full-size headphone. But another way to help the show, maybe even a better way to help the show, is to just tell people about it. If you know someone who struggles to sleep, who will find benefits from listening to Sleepy Time Tales, just tell them about it. If you do so on social media, please make sure to tag me in at Sleepy Time Tales on Instagram or Twitter so that I can see and I can thank you. And of course, I'd just like to shout out the music, which is Sweet Night and Friends by Kumiku. Their music is available on their website at loyaltyfreakmusic.com and is well worth checking out. Thank you for taking the time. Let's get back to the show. So what exactly is Sleepy Time Tales? What is it for? What is this strange idea, this podcast that you're supposed to fall asleep to? But lack of sleep is a health crisis in the 21st century, and this is a podcast intended to help those that it can to get a restful night. Do you find yourself lying awake at night, mind spinning and emotions in turmoil with anxieties of 21st century life? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and find yourself not quite able to doze back off for 3am? I'm here to help. My name is Dave, and I'm your narrator, here to help you into a restful night. Sleepy Time Tales is intended to be used as a distraction to what keeps you awake at night. Or maybe some kind of background noise, or even simply company. That's why I make these episodes quite long so that I'm here for you, without any pressure of the end coming. 
Now, as far as I know, there are a couple of different ways to engage with the show. The primary idea is that it gives you something to focus on, a story or an event that lets you keep your mind on a specific point, to stop it from spinning out into stress and anxieties, to help you to focus just enough not to resist the embrace of a night's sleep. But maybe you need something a bit different, maybe you just need some kind of background noise. Some people like the sound of the ocean, or the wind in the trees, or maybe just some boring dude droning on. But the important thing is that you don't try to force the sleep. Just keep a light mental grip on the thread of the story and allow sleep to come for you naturally. Now obviously I'm hoping you're asleep before I get to the end of the episode, but don't feel pressurized. If this is your first night, it probably won't work for you. Maybe it'll take a few nights for you to get used to listening to my voice. Maybe my accent is strange for you. Maybe one episode just isn't long enough. Or maybe your problem isn't so much going to sleep. Maybe you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night. What I recommend, because it's what works for me, is to let the podcast run all night. Download a whole bunch of episodes in your podcast player of choice. Make sure it's enough to play through the whole night. Put them in a playlist and let them play. That way, when you wake up, and it's still running and I'm still talking to you, you can just pop your earbuds back in and allow yourself to go straight back to sleep. You can even do the same thing if you find yourself waking up just before the alarm, 60 minutes or even 30 minutes. I recommend the same thing and um, there's something about allowing yourself complete relaxation right before the alarm that's satisfying on a whole new level. But as you're listening, whether it's early in the evening, middle of the night, just too early in the morning, it's very important that you try to relax. If you're new to the show, this may seem strange to you, so just give it a chance. Because I'm here to work with you, to create a safe space, a cocoon in which you can curl up and allow nature to take its course. So if you're still with me, thank you for staying. If you're already asleep, we'll chat again soon. And of course you aren't hearing me, except maybe in a dream. After a very long break, we return to In the Days of the Comet by H.G. Wells. I found myself thinking constantly of Nettie, picturing her sometimes with stern satisfaction, sometimes with sympathetic remorse, mourning, regretting, realizing the absolute end that had come between us. At the bottom of my heart, I no more believed that there was an end between us than that an end would come to the world. Had we not kissed one another, had we not achieved an atmosphere of whispering nearness, reached our virgin shyness with another? Of course she was mine. Of course I was hers. And separations and final quarrels and harshness and distance were no more than flourishes upon that eternal fact. So at least I felt that thing, 
however I shape my thoughts. Whenever my imagination got to work as that week drew to its close, she came in as a matter of course. I thought of her recurrently all day and dreamt of her at night. On Saturday night I dreamt of her very vividly. Her face was flushed and wet with tears, her hair a little disordered, and when I spoke to her she turned away. In some manner this dream left in my mind a feeling of distress and anxiety. In the morning I had a raging thirst to see her. That Sunday my mother wanted me to go to church very particularly. She had a double reason for that. She thought that it would certainly exercise a favourable influence upon my search for a situation throughout the next week. And in addition, Mr. Gabatas with a certain mystery behind his glasses, had promised to see what he could do for me, and she wanted to keep him up to that promise. I half consented, and then my desire for Nettie took hold of me. I told my mother I wasn't going to church, and set off at about eleven to walk the seventeen miles to Chekshill. It greatly intensified the fatigue of that long tramp, that the sole of my boot presently split at the toe. And after I had cut the flapping portion off, a nail worked through and began to torment me. However, the boot looked alright after that operation and gave no audible hint of my discomfort. I got some bread and cheese at a little inn on the way and was in Chexel Park about four. I did not go by the road past the house and so round to the gardens, but cut over the crest beyond the second keeper's cottage, along a path Nettie used to call her own. It was a mere deer track. It led up a miniature valley and through a pretty dell in which we had been accustomed to meet and so through the hollies and along a narrow path close by the wall of the shrubbery to the gardens. In my memory that walk through the park before I came upon Nettie stands out very vividly. The long tramp before it is foreshortened to a mere effect of dusty road and painful boot, but the bracken valley and sudden tumult of doubts and unwanted expectations that came to me stands out now as something significant as something unforgettable, something essential to the meaning of all that followed. Where should I meet her? What should, would she say? I had asked these questions before and found an answer. Now they came again with a trail of fresh implications and I had no answer for them at all. As I approached Nettie, she ceased to be the mere butt of my egotistical self-projection the custodian of my pride, and drew together and became over and above this a personality of her own, a personality and a mystery, a sphinx I evaded only to meet again. I find a little difficulty in describing the quality of the old world romance, so that may be understandable now. We young people had practically no preparation at all for the stir and emotions of adolescence. 
Towards the young, the world maintained a conspiracy of stimulating silences. There came no initiation. There were books, stories of a curiously conventional kind, that insisted on certain qualities in every love affair and greatly intensified one's natural desire for them. Perfect trust, perfect loyalty, lifelong devotion. Much of the complex essentials of love were altogether hidden. One read these things, got accidental glimpses of this and that, wandered and forgot. And so one grew. Then strange emotions, novel alarming desires, dreams strangely charged with feeling, an explicable impulse of self-abandonment began to tickle queerly amongst the familiar, purely egotistical and materialistic things of boyhood and girlhood. We were like misguided travellers who had camped in the dry bed of a tropical river. Presently we were knee-deep and neck-deep in the flood. Our beings were suddenly going out from ourselves, seeking other beings. We knew not why. This novel craving for abandonment to someone bore us away. We were ashamed and full of desire. We kept the thing a guilty secret, and were resolved to satisfy it against all the world. In this state it was we drifted in the most accidental way, against some other blindingly seeking creature, and linked like nascent atoms. We were obsessed by the books we read, by all the talk about us that once we had linked ourselves, we were linked for life. Then afterwards we discovered that other was also an egotism, a thing of impulse and ideas that failed to correspond with ours. So it was, I say, with the young of my class and most of the young people in our world. So it came about that I sought Nettie on the Sunday afternoon, and suddenly came upon her. Light-bodied, slenderly feminine, hazel-eyed, with a soft, sweet young face under the shady brim of her hat of straw. The pretty Venus I'd resolved should be wholly and exclusively mine. There, all unaware of me still, she stood. My essential feminine the embodiment of the inner thing in life for me, and moreover, an unknown other, a person like myself. She held a little book in her hand, open as if she were walking along and reading it. That chanced to be her pose, but indeed she was standing quite still, looking away towards the grey and lichenous shrubbery wall. And as I think now, Listening. Her lips were a little apart, curved to that faint, sweet shadow of a smile. I recall with a vivid precision her queer start when she heard the rustle of my approaching feet. A surprise, her ideas almost of dismay for me. I could recollect, I believe, every significant word she spoke during our meeting and most of what I said to her. At least it seems I could, though indeed I may deceive myself. 
but I will not make the attempt. We were both too ill-educated to speak our full meanings. We stamped out our feelings with clumsy stereotyped phrases. You who are better taught would fail to catch our intention. The effect would be inanity. But our first words I may give you, because though they conveyed nothing to me at the time, afterwards they meant much. You, Willie, she said. I have come, I said, forgetting in the instant all the elaborate things I had intended to say. I thought I would surprise you. Surprise me? Yes? She stared at me for a moment. I can see her pretty face now as it looked at me. Her impenetrable dear face. She laughed a queer little laugh, and her colour went for a moment. Then so soon as she had spoken, came back again. Surprise me at what? She said with her rising note. I was too intent to explain myself to think of what might lie in that. I wanted to tell you, I said, that I didn't mean quite the things I put in my letter. When Nettie and I had been sixteen, we had been just of an age and contemporaries altogether. Now we were a year and three quarters older, and she... Her metamorphosis was almost complete, and I was still only at the beginning of a man's long adolescence. In an instant she grasped the situation. The hidden motives of her quick, ripened little mind flashed out the intuitive scheme of action. She treated me with that neat perfection of understanding a young woman has for a boy. But how did you come? she asked. I told her I had walked. Walked? In an instant she was leading me towards the gardens. I must be tired. I must come home with her at once and sit down. Indeed, it was near tea time. The stewards had tea at the old-fashioned hour of five. Everyone would be so surprised to see me. Fancy walking. Fancy. But she supposed a man thought nothing of seventeen miles. When could I have started? All the while keeping me at a distance, without even the touch of her hand. But Nettie... I came over to talk to you. My dear boy, tea first if you please, and besides, aren't we talking? The dear boy was a new note that sounded oddly to me. She quickened her pace a little. I wanted to explain, I began. Whatever I wanted to explain, I had no chance to do so. I said a few discrepant things that she answered, rather by her intonation than her words. When we were well past the shrubbery, she slackened a little in her urgency, and so we came along the slope under the beeches to the garden. She kept her bright, straightforward-looking girlish eyes on me as we went. It seems she did so all the time, but now I know better than I did then that every now and then she glanced over me, 
and behind me towards the shrubbery. And all the while, behind her quick, breathless and consecutive talk, she was thinking. Her dress marked the end of her transition. Can I recall it? Not, I'm afraid, in the terms a woman would use. But her bright brown hair, which had once flowed down her back in a jolly pigtail, tied with a bit of scarlet ribbon, was now caught up into an intricacy of pretty curves above her little ear and cheek, and the soft long lines of her neck, her white dress had descended to her feet. Her slender waist, which had once been a mere geographical expression, an imaginary line like the equator, was now a thing of flexible beauty. A year ago, she had been a pretty girl's face sticking out from a little unimportant frock that was carried upon an extremely active and efficient pair of brown stockinged legs. Now there was coming a strange new body that flowed beneath her clothes with a sinuous insistence. Every movement, and particularly the novel droop of her hand and arm to the unaccustomed skirt she gathered about her, and a graceful forward inclination that had come to her called softly to my eyes. A very fine scarf, I suppose you would call it a scarf, of green gossamer that some new wakened instinct had told her to fling about her shoulders, clung now closely to her, to her body, and now streamed fluttering out for a moment in a breath of wind, and like some shy independent tentacle with a secret to impart, came into momentary contact with my arm. She caught it back and reproved it. We went through the green gate and the high garden wall. I held it open for her to pass through, for this was one of my restricted stock of stiff politenesses. And then for a second she was near touching me. So we came to the trim array of flower beds near the head gardener's cottage, and the vistas of glass on our left. We walked between the box edgings and beds of begonias, and into the shadow of a yew hedge within twenty yards of that very pond with the goldfish, at whose brim we had plighted our vows. And so we came to the wisteria smothered porch. The door was wide open, and she walked in before me. Guess who has come to see us, she cried. Her father answered indistinctly from the parlour, and a chair creaked. I judged he was disturbed in his nap. Mother, she called in her clear young voice, Puss. Puss was her sister. She told them in a marvelling key that I had walked all the way from Clayton, and they gathered about me and echoed her notes of surprise. You'd better sit down, Willie, said her father, now you've got here. How's your mother? He looked at me curiously as he spoke. He was dressed in his Sunday clothes, a sort of brownish tweeds, but the waistcoat was unbuttoned for greater comfort in his slumbers. He was a brown-eyed, ruddy man, and I still have now in my mind 
the bright effect of the red golden hairs that started out from his cheek to flow down into his beard. He was short but strongly built, and his beard and moustache were the biggest things about him. She had taken all the possibility of beauty he possessed, his clear skin, his bright hazel-brown eyes, and wedded them to a certain quickness she got from her mother. Her mother, I remember, is a sharp-eyed woman of great activity. She seems to me now to have been perpetually bringing in or taking out meals, or doing some such service. And to me, for my mother's sake and my own, she was always welcoming and kind. Puss was a youngster of fourteen, perhaps, of whom a bright hard stare, and a pale skin like her mother's, are the chief traces on my memory. All these people were very kind to me, and among them was a common recognition, sometimes very agreeably finding expression, that was clever. They all stood about me as if they were a little at a loss. Sit down, said her father. Give him a chair, puss. We talked a little stiffly. They were evidently surprised by my sudden apparition. Dusty, fatigued, and white-faced. But Nettie did not remain to keep the conversation going. There, she cried suddenly, as if she were vexed, I declare. And she darted out of the room. Lord, what a girl it is, said Mrs. Stewart. I don't know what's come to her. It was half an hour before Nettie came back. It seemed a long time to me, and yet she had been running. For when she came in again, she was out of breath. In the meantime, I had thrown out casually that I had given up my place at Rawdon's. I can do better than that, I said. I left my book in the dell, she said, panting. Is tea ready? And that was her apology. We didn't shake down into comfort, even with the coming of the tea things. Tea at the gardener's cottage was a serious meal, with a big cake and little cakes, and preserves and fruit. A fine spread upon a table. You must imagine me. Sullen, awkward, and preoccupied. Perplexed by the something that was inexplicably unexpected in Nettie. Saying little, and glowering across the cake at her, and all the eloquence I had been concentrating for the previous twenty-four hours, miserably lost somewhere in the back of my mind. Nettie's father tried to set me to talking. He had a liking for my gift of ready speech for his own ideas came with difficulty, and it pleased and astonished him to hear me pouring out my views. Indeed, over there I was, I think, even more talkative than with Pollard, though to the world at large I was a shy young lout. You ought to write it out for the newspapers, he used to say. That's what you ought to do. I never heard such nonsense. Or you've got the gift of the gab, young man. We ought to have made a lawyer of you. 
But in that afternoon, even in his eyes, I didn't shine. Failing any other stimulus, he reverted to my search for a situation. But even that did not engage me. For a long time, I feared I should have to go back to Clayton without another word to Nettie. She seemed insensible to the need I felt for a talk with her. And I was thinking even of a sudden demand for that before them all. It was a transparent maneuver of her mother's who had been watching my face that sent us out at last together to do something. I forget now what, in one of the greenhouses. Whatever that little mission may have been, it was the merest, most barefaced excuse. A door to shut, or a window to close, and I don't think it got done. Nettie hesitated and obeyed. She led the way through one of the hothouses. It was a low, steamy, brick-floored alley between staging that bore a close crowd of pots and fern and behind big branching plants that were spread and nailed overhead, so as to make an impervious cover of leaves. And in that close screen privacy she stopped, and turned on me suddenly like a creature at bay. Isn't the maiden hair fern lovely, she said, and looked at me with eyes that said, Now? Nettie, I began. I was a fool to write to you as I did. She startled me by the ascent that flashed out upon her face. But she said nothing and stood waiting. Nettie, I plunged. I can't do without you. I love you. If you loved me, she said trimly, watching the white fingers she plunged among the green branches of Selaginella. Could you write the things you do to me? I don't mean them, I said. At least not always. I thought really they were very good letters, and that Nettie was stupid to think otherwise. But I was for the moment clearly aware of the impossibility of conveying that to her. You wrote them. But then I tramped seventeen miles to say I don't mean them. Yes, but perhaps you do. I think I was at a loss. Then I said, not very clearly, I don't. You think you, you love me, Willie, but you don't. I do, Nettie, I know I do. For answer, she shook her head. I made what I thought was a most heroic plunge. Nettie, I said, I'd rather have you than, than my own opinions. The Salaginella still engaged her. You think so now, she said. I broke out into protestation. No, she said shortly, it's different now. But why should two letters make so much difference, I said. It isn't only the letters, but it is different. It's different for good. 
She halted a little with that sentence, seeking her expression. She looked up abruptly into my eyes and moved, indeed slightly, but with the intimation that she thought our talk might end. But I did not mean it to end like that. For good, said I? No. Nettie, Nettie, you don't mean that. I do, she said deliberately, still looking at me, and with all her pose conveying her finality. She seemed to brace herself for the outbreak that must follow. Of course I became wordy, but I did not submerge her. She stood entrenched, firing her contradictions like guns into my scattered discursive attack. I remember that our talk took the absurd form of disputing whether I could be in love with her or not. And there was I, presence and evidence, in a deepening and widening distress of soul, because she could stand there, defensive, brighter and prettier than ever, and in some inexplicable way cut off from me and inaccessible. You know, we had never been together before, without little enterprises of endearment, without a faintly guilty, quite delightful excitement. I pleaded, I argued, I tried to show that even my harsh and difficult letters came from a desire to come wholly into contact with her. I made exaggerated, fine statements of the longing I felt for her when I was away, of the shock and misery of finding her estranged and cool. She looked at me, feeling the emotion of my speech and impervious to its ideas. I had no doubt, whatever poverty in my words, coolly written down now, that I was eloquent then. I meant most intensely what I said. Indeed, I was wholly concentrated upon it. I was set upon conveying to her with absolute sincerity my sense of distance and the greatness of my desire. I toiled towards her painfully and obstinately through a jungle of words. Her face changed very slowly, by such imperceptible degrees as when at dawn light comes into a clear sky. I could feel that I touched her, that her hardness was in some manner melting her determination softening towards hesitations. The habit of an older familiarity lurked somewhere within her, but she would not let me reach her. No, she cried abruptly, starting into motion. She laid a hand on my arm. A wonderful new friendliness came into her voice. It's impossible, Willie. Everything is different now, everything. We made a mistake. We two young sillies made a mistake and everything is different forever. Yes, yes. She turned about. Nettie, cried I, and still protesting, pursued her along the narrow alley between the staging toward the hothouse door. I pursued her like an accusation, and she went before me like one who is guilty and ashamed. So I recall it now. 
she would not let me talk to her again. Yet I could see that my talk to her had altogether abolished the clear-cut distance of our meeting in the park. Ever and again I found her hazel eyes upon me. They expressed something novel, a surprise, as though she realized an unwanted relationship, and a sympathetic pity. And still, something defensive. When we got back to the cottage, I felt talking rather more freely with her father about the nationalization of railways, and my spirits and temper had so far mended at the realization that I could still produce an effect upon Nettie, that I was even playful with Puss. Mrs. Stewart judged from that that things were better with me than they were, and began to be martily. But Nettie remained thoughtful and said very little. She was lost in perplexities I could not fathom, and presently she slipped away from us and went upstairs. And that seems like a good place to call it for the night. As always, if you'd like to pick up where we've left off, you can find it on Project Gutenberg at the link in the show notes. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Sleepy Town Tales. The podcast designed around a bedtime story to help you to get a restful night. New episodes will be released every Sunday night to give you something fresh to help you rest in a new week. But make sure to subscribe in whatever service you use so that you get your new episodes whenever they come out. A reminder that the music for tonight is Sweet Night and Friends by Kumiku. Check out more of their work on their website, which you'll find linked in the show notes. Good night and sweet dreams.